Hello and welcome. This is the Race and Podcast, a series of interviews and conversations hosted by the Society of Architectural Historians, Race and Architectural History Group. My name is Charles Davis, and I'm an Associate Professor of Architectural History at SUNY Buffalo. I am also the host of the Race and Podcast, and I'm here to introduce you to a special series produced in collaboration with Princeton University School of Architecture. This series is entitled American Architecture as a Settler Colonial Project. This series re-examines American architecture through the lens of settler colonialism to identify the ways that racial discourses have distorted our conception of the built environment. It is divided into two parts. Part one examines canonical examples of American architecture and its written theory from the late 19th century to the present. Part two recovers the works of people of color to reprise the countercultural definitions of architecture that have been lost to time. A major goal of these podcasts is to provide teaching plans to primary, secondary, and higher education instructors who wish to examine the role of race on the built environment. Please take a look at the resources provided in the show notes of each episode, which include annotations of each conversation and detailed bibliographies on reference materials students can explore. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you enjoy our series. We've all seen, in some way, shape, or form, Hollywood's utopic imagery of a suburban neighborhood. Scenes with jogging mothers along tree-lined, perfectly paved sidewalks, manicured lawns and hedges in front of well-behaving, single-family homes with white picket fences, and always well-dressed, well-groomed, white neighbors. The weather is always a sunny 65, and the slogan might as well be, a nice place to live. You're listening to a podcast titled Same Old Suburbanism, a discussion that critiques new urbanism through the lens of settler colonialism. I'm Melissa Barstow, and with Helen Fielkowski, we are producing this as graduate students in collaboration with Professor Charles Davis in the School of Architecture at Princeton University. This is part of a larger project to reinterpret American architecture and whiteness as a settler colonialist history. In this episode, we will introduce the Charter for New Urbanism, how it fits within the larger context of settler colonialism, and what mechanisms new urbanists have used to reframe the methods of modern urban planning, said to have produced placeless sprawl, towards reproducing the very world-building white capitalist agenda they claim to dismantle. It's 1999. City planners throughout the U.S. can no longer ignore the consequences of the post-war building boom. The 1940s and 50s were characterized by the presence of the automobile. Highways were being constructed to expand outwards, and ownership of a car and home became the picture of the American dream. All of this expansion was enabled by new land policies being put in place by the Federal Housing Administration to encourage white middle-class families to buy a house outside of what was characterized as the dense, blighted, irreparable city center and into the countryside. This caused what planners described as unchecked, placeless suburban sprawl. A group of architects, 
led by couple Elizabeth Plater Zeidberg and Andres Duani, set out to define a movement advocating for the restoration of existing urban centers and towns within coherent metropolitan regions, the reconfiguration of sprawling suburbs into communities of real neighborhoods and diverse districts, the conservation of natural environments, and the preservation of our built legacy. Sounds okay, right? This they called new urbanism. In response to what they saw as a 50-year story of bad planning policies, the new urbanists saw those that lived in the suburbs as victims, a.k.a. the soccer mom, cul-de-sac kid, grandma down the street, speaking primarily to white middle-class families. Although sounding well-intentioned, advocating for buzzwords like walkability, diversity, sustainability, and mixed-use development, the real goal of new urbanism was a retreat to and renewal of planned neighborhoods of the early 1900s, bringing the U.S. back 100 years. We argue that by retreating to this form of quote-unquote traditional community design of the 1900s, new urbanists really brought back romanticized notions of the earliest American colonies, and by doing so, reinforced settler colonial narratives of land acquisition and white placemaking. We argue, through the lens of Audre Lorde, as described in Ariella Azule's piece, Potential Histories, where she says, For the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. That through using the very same tools that enabled exclusion and violence towards the black body in a space constructed around whiteness, it only perpetuates the same condition. With this, by returning and simply reusing the same pre-war design methods, urban planning only reinforces the quote-unquote racial patriarchy just with a new name. Le Corbusier, a French architect with iconic circular black-framed glasses, is one of the most often heard names thrown around when describing early founders of architectural modernism. In the 1920s, architects and planners were seeking rationality and functional forms of world building. Urban planning became an institution of top-down control where a single white male architect had the ability to design an entire city. Countless images of famed architects standing by scaled miniature models of entire cities constructed with just paper and wood can be seen from this time. Corbusier's hand hovering over his design for the radiant city as one example imply a godlike control over an entire population. Although new urbanists were critiquing the lack of human scale that Corb and his fellow modernist movement of CIAM were advocating for, they saw the potential in mirroring a top-down approach to solving large-scale issues of development, specifically the suburb. This single developer vision only strengthens Patrick Wolfe's argument that the control of territory is central to the settler colonialist agenda and is foundational to modernity. This is an entire structure rather than a single event. Even the notion of tabula rasa, or blank slate, frequently referred to when describing these sites for new urbanism, is assuming that any territory is able to just be claimed, and that what was there before was blighted or unworthy of keeping. Thus, just repeating the very same patterns of raising of entire spaces for a white agenda. Seaside Florida, for example, new urbanism's main example of the ideal model town, literally took over a swatch of land in Florida under the developer Robert Davis, removed from anything around it. It's its 20-minute drive from any other neighborhood as a small enclave utopia as a testing ground for these charter tenants. Nothing about this community attempts to repair an existing fabric. This shows the motive of the charter as an important vision for an entire world in a seemingly blank location. 
Here is what they say about tradition and community in Chapter 6 of the Charter for New Urbanism. Throughout time, people have developed vernacular design and building practices in response to their needs, desires, and environments. Each community shared a local vision and language of how to build their world, as well as more universal principles about patterns, precedents, and boundaries. They shared common customs and culture that led them to create places that were a part of a larger, coherent, ordered, and intrinsically beautiful whole. Christopher Alexander calls this intuitive knowledge the timeless way of building in his 1979 book of the same title. They continue by even saying, we should respect the historical patterns, precedents, and boundaries that made earlier settlements flourish. One of the main points within the Charter for New Urbanism is a return to the planned communities of the beginning of the 20th century, using traditional principles, patterns, and precedents. They believe older towns like Coral Gables, Shaker Heights, and Forest Hills can serve as fundamental case studies that embody highly successful, and as they say, enduring public and private realms. We argue that this framework is simply promoting the exact arrangements and control of land of the earliest colonial settlers in the United States. Shaker Heights, for example, was one of the earliest land communities in Ohio, where a group of property owners advocated to detach land from previous Shaker Village and advertised it as a suburban retreat from the near-industrial city of Cleveland. This was single-handedly developed by the Van Swearingen brothers, giving the impression that the town was built under a single vision and therefore reinforcing a single history of living. If we are to take Shaker Heights as an example of the kind of traditional pattern of territory that new urbanists seek to embody, then we are essentially looking for a replication of racist patriarchal ideals that date back to the founding of the first North American colonies, whereby the black body was excluded from any sense of free space and enslaved under capitalist regimes of labor. The charter is explicitly arguing for diversity but it neglects to recognize the invisible privilege embedded in the whiteness by design of these spaces. Although well-intentioned to encourage anybody, if constructed through these colonialist patterns, as Sarah Ahmed argues, there is an inherited whiteness within these spaces, and bodies are shaped by a world of colonialism. Celebrated by new urbanist Jacqueline Robertson, in the book, The Seaside Debates, she states, Williamsburg gives us a clear American order of things. The main street town elegantly anodizing the form of our public buildings, streets, houses, trees, yards, and natural terrain, a town pattern that can adapt and move westward. The image of the original colonies in America are seen as forms to be embodied and emulated here. Robertson even goes so far as to say that, Williamsburg, the capital of our largest and richest colony, remains one of the clearest and most important early models of our initial urban intentions and practices. Williamsburg could easily be exchanged with other American colonies, but this gives a sense of how the new urbanists speak of these traditional white enclaves. The new urbanist agenda is to reconstruct the image of the ideal city or neighborhood, but the question we keep asking is, who is the ideal city for? Later in the Charter, they explicitly construct a Eurocentric image and white identity for ideal community building. Here's a quote from Chapter 8. We frequently look to Europe for inspiration on how to make public transit work in America. In fact, Europeans use transit only a bit more than American. What they do a lot more of every day is walk. 
By making our regions more walkable, we will take a huge step towards making them more livable, drivable, and friendly to bicycles and pedestrians. The new urbanists are trying to sell a vision for the future of development, a new form of urbanism that any and all architects and designers might be able to participate within. But in reality, new urbanists are working within the typical pre-existing mindset of a developer, client, and real estate management relationship, but at the scale of an entire town. In this structure, renderings, images, and master plans are produced, voted on, and eventually funded by a single body, for example, Robert Davis in the case of Seaside, or the Van Swearingen brothers in the case of Shaker Heights, where the stakeholders expect the image to be implemented, leaving very little, if any, space for other voices and visions. Sharon Zukin, a professor at the College of New York in the sociology department who focuses on modern urban life, presents the idea of the symbolic economy as the visible ability of the city to produce both symbols and living space. We see in media, film, and politics large corporations like Disney and Hollywood working to engrave a collective memory and collective identity through the process of image making. The image of a city or a suburb becomes embedded. It is the very consumption of these images that produces and reinforces Sukin's symbolic economy, making it an economic endeavor to retain this image of the American ideal. As Sharon Zukin argues, this retains a coded means of discrimination an undertone to the dominant discourse of democratization. With this idea of constructed images and collective memory, Andres Duani, leader of the new urbanism movement, was even quoted to say that, renderings are instruments of propaganda. This is the way that we should take them. They get the votes necessary for implementation. If we keep designing these utopic visions of the sitcom suburb that build off of colonial narratives, we will only continue to perpetuate a collective memory and image of a world based around whiteness. This has been the podcast, Same Old Suburbanism, a critique of the Charter for New Urbanism, written and produced by Helen Pielkowski and Melissa Barstow as a part of a larger project in the School of Architecture at Princeton University with Professor Charles Davis. A special thanks to writers and critics referenced in this podcast, Ariella Azule, Audrey Lord, Patrick Wolf, Sharon Zukin, Sarah Ahmed, and the authors of the Charter for New Urbanism. Music and sound clips used in this podcast from The Truman Show, Crowinder, John Luke Hefferman, and the Victor Dance Orchestra. Links to all works referenced in this podcast, as well as videos and papers for future research, can be found in the show notes below. Thanks. That concludes this episode of the Raysan Podcast. For updates on future episodes, please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Podcast, all one word. To access the show notes and more information on our guests, please visit the Society of Architectural Historians Race and Architectural History Affiliate Group page at sahraah.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>